This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount. Before I get to that, I want to highlight a couple of products. So footwear has been a big issue, and we all know that these heavy-duty work boots cause a lot of issues with joint health and fatigue. Listening to the responders in the field, the military in the field, 511 have reverse engineered and created some incredible footwear that is much more lightweight, just as durable, and minimizes both fatigue and damage to the joints. One of those is the Norris sneaker. I have a pair of those myself. They are incredible. And the other one is the AT trainer that has the Atlas system, which spreads the weight of the load over the entire foot, thus reducing fatigue and long-term damage. Aside from footwear, they have the backpacks. I have the AMP pack myself. Their civilian clothes, the jeans, the shorts, I absolutely live in these days. The flashlights are some of the brightest I've seen, and they last an incredibly long time on one charge. The list goes on and on. Now, because 511 cares about you, the tactical population, they are offering you a discount of 15% on every purchase that you make. So go to 511 Tactical, use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, and save 15% every time you shop. And if you want to learn even more about the company, listen to episode 338 with co-founder and CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 454 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Dr. John Deloney. So we discuss a host of topics from his crisis intervention work in the collegiate setting, the pressures on students, his own mental health struggles, and ultimately writing the book Redefining Anxiety. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on subscribe to the show 
leave feedback. I truly love reading your feedback and leave a rating. Each five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it more and more visible and thus easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, the audience. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Dr. John Deloney. Enjoy. Well, John, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Come on, man. Thank you for having me on, James. It's a, it's a, it's a blessing, man. I appreciate you. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I'm currently in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a transplant. I spent every day of my life in Texas before we moved out here three years ago, a little over three years, something, something like that, a few years ago. And um, so I'm here in Nashville. It's beautiful. Beautiful. We'll get to why you're there now and, you know, the group that you're with, which I think is very exciting. Um, so I like to start chronologically. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Oh, man. So I was born and raised in Houston, Texas in the very end of the late 70s. My dad was a police officer. He was a homicide detective and my mom was a stay at home mom. She came from a background where she was not encouraged to, she was discouraged, in fact. Um, Christian women had no business being educated. There's no reason to do that. Um, You just need to stay at home. And so I have an older sister who is 10x smarter than me and a younger brother who's 20x smarter than me. I think my younger brother missed two questions at SAT, something obnoxious like that. And my sister was on the academic decathlon team. And I was an athlete and a loudmouth, just an obnoxious idiot man and so we grew up in this in this cool little family in north houston we were um i don't say we were poor we did not have a lot um at all and we grew up in a community north of houston to where i my dad used to put polaroids on the desk and say hey if these guys these guys are getting out of jail this week and your daddy helped put them away so if they knock on the door don't answer it and call and so at the time, you know, that sounded like great advice. Now, in retrospect, I'm, it's programmed into my head. Any knock on that door, man, could be, you know, somebody coming to get you. And so that was just the the, the code that we grew up by. My dad lived and did a job where things that never happen, that's what he spent all day dealing with, right? Those things that do happen. And so that just seeped its way into your into the DNA of each of us kids and then when my mom was about 42, I think is when she took her first community college class. She was such a courageous, brave soul. And I think we, I took, uh, man, algebra or geometry. We took it together. I was a freshman in high school and she was 42. And then she took another community college class and another class. And then at 57, she graduated with her PhD from University of Houston. And now she's 70. She's a department chair at a university is an English professor travels all over the globe. Um, as a medievalist, she just, I mean, she's had this wild second life. And so, um, two core themes grew up growing up with is when everything falls apart, John, in this house, we head into it, not away from it. 
And the second thing was you can start over and change and do anything you want at any time, at any place. There are no boundaries to your life. The only boundary is uh, be a person of character and go where the fire is at. Don't go away from it. And then other than that, man, go do whatever it is that you think you want to do. And um, so those two things have kind of been the core, the core um, life lessons that I took with us. Beautiful. What? Well, firstly, I can relate to your mom's struggle because I was in my 40s when I was in um, University of Florida here. That's mm. a very awkward thing to be yeah, in a classroom is, with a bunch of 18-year-olds. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. And, and yeah, they look like they've got it all together and you feel like you don't know what you're doing, but you're 10 times wiser and smarter. And yeah, it's, 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 it's a remarkable journey to be back in school later in life. So with your dad, I mean, I've, I've talked a lot about you know, just, just physical health, mental health and first responders. Now you found yourself in that realm in a, in a different path. Retroactively, when you look back, like what were some of the challenges he had? I mean, a homicide detective, you, you're exposed yeah. to a huge amount of trauma. Yeah, it's, it's trauma all day. Um, I think it's twofold trauma, by the way. I think there's the trauma of seeing, you know, what you see every day, right? You see bodies and you see body parts and you see weeping people. I mean, so there's that acute trauma that happens all the time. But something he told me when I was really young that has stuck with me, he, he said the hardest part of his job is not the bodies and it's not the devastation that you see. There's, we have, we have natural innate abilities to deal with that trauma. It is interviewing somebody. You know, we like to, as a culture, we say, you're a murderer. And it's a big red neon sign. And we place those people over here. He said, the worst part of my job is interviewing somebody about something they did and realizing that, but for a few different life circumstances, I'm that guy. We're the same guy, except this guy got dealt this hand and he played it in this way. And that guy did this. And then suddenly somebody's dead. And it was a humble way to walk through life, right? Never get too big for your britches. Always know that you are a couple of situations away from having an irreversible thing happen to you. So be very careful how you navigate life. And I think that the relational trauma is what ultimately got him, um, was ultimately weighed on his soul a lot. And so back then, um, Man, there was nothing. Don't take care of yourself, right? You eat something or drink something or smoke something or whatever, whatever your addiction is, um, get another girlfriend or another boyfriend, whatever that thing is, and that's how you get through it. My dad was such a person of character and integrity. He got, he, um, but he always struggled with his weight. He always struggled with his physical health. He never drank or smoked, never had alcohol in the house growing up. He was, I think he saw what that could do to the life of a police officer. Um, but man, it was isolating and lonely. And I remember him pacing the house at night, just could never sleep. And now I know enough to know the devastating effects of years of not sleeping, that isolating nature, um, not having true, true community. And so it's been neat watching him in his later life as he's gone back to police work. Now he's a professor. He teaches criminal justice at a, at a university, um, watching him slowly learn man, I got to sleep. I got to take care of myself. I got to be in relation with other people. And not because I can do stuff for him but just because I'm worth being in a relationship with myself. And so um, I'm blessed to be in a, in a world now where we understand the devastating effects of trauma and how important it is to take care of yourself so that you can go do this work, not the other way around. Yeah, it's it's one, there's a few common denominators that have come out of this journey that I've been on like four and a half years now of discussions. Um, and they're all, like I said, from mental health specific to, you know, 
the, um, nutrition and exercise, everything, because I'm looking at the person as a, as a global being. Um, but sleep deprivation, the shift work that responders do is, you know, horrific, absolutely yeah. horrific. And we'll, we maybe explore it. right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But the big, other big thing that, again, I think is at the root of when one person becomes a martyr or, you know, an angel, another one becomes a, you know, um, the other wrong side of the tracks is childhood trauma. Absolutely. So, when you look back at yours, because I, mean, I know you dealt with some anxiety in the book, you talk about addressing trauma. You, you know, you've got these Polaroids on the table. I mean, that in itself is a, is a kind of you know hypervigilance <laughs> yeah, element. Yeah, yeah. Were there anything when you look back retroactively you think that contributed to your, um, you know, your mental health struggles hmm. as you got later in life? I think most of my challenge comes from. Um, Oh man. Yes. I definitely had my childhood trauma experiences with other people and my own man, just when you look back on it, you know, it, it almost becomes dreamlike that that really happened with those situations. So yeah, I definitely had that. I think, um, probably the, the most significant trauma was related to my religious upbringing and how do I balance faith and how do I balance people in my community about halfway through my childhood my dad quit over a weekend and became a minister at a large church there in houston that we where we went and um he did it very non-traditionally he, he wasn't a uh, traditional pastor he didn't go to seminary or anything like that he just had a lifetime of experience of working with people behind closed doors when things got messy and where that was cool in our house was people were always calling the house hey my son got arrested my son is dealing with addiction my daughter's experiencing this, my wife just cheated on me. They came to him, right? Cause there was no therapist on every corner back in the, in the, in the eighties, right? There was no mental health. We didn't know what to do. We went to that guy. Cause he, I call, call him. Well, his closet is a little bitty closet backed up to my bed, like my bedroom. And so there was a thin wall between us. And if I laid at bed at night, he would pull the corded phone in there and talk to these community leaders, these people at my church, these um, important folks, as they were navigating these nightmare situations, child abuse, scandals, so-and-so is not a good person, so-and-so is leaving their, their spouse, et cetera. And dude, as a child, I just downloaded all this. And I would go to church on Sunday and see that guy or that woman dressed nice, all done up, shaking hands, and I'd know, hey, wait a minute, your life is, you're, you're not being consistent here. I think that's what I had to wrestle with the most was people living incongruent lives. You say you're this way, but I know behind closed doors, you're this way, right? And so I think that probably laid the groundwork for an, a, a sidewalk that was unstable to walk on. In retrospect, it's the single greatest thing I could have in my childhood. But I did have to process it and work through it because I didn't have a psychology for, I don't think any kid does for, this person says this, but they live like this, right? That was hard. And just the the existential trauma of, Hey, there's a God listening to your thoughts. And if you think the wrong ones, he's going to kill you and torture you forever. Right. So coming to terms with, ah, that sounds hard, man. Um, so I, that weighed on me a lot as a kid as well. Interesting. Well, tell me about your journey into crisis intervention then. Um, man, it is just stumbling forward. So I was a, I worked at colleges and universities. And so I bounced around from a few schools and then as you talked about my man, I, I went nuts. I was on call 24 seven, 365. And so I started ending up in hospitals with students and some seasons I was there a couple of times a week. Um, somebody would, would drink too much or try to 
hurt themselves, try to take their life, or they're in a car wreck, et cetera. And so you're dealing with these things all the time. And you're calling parents in the middle of the night saying, hey, your kid's in the hospital. They're probably not going to make it. Hey, your kid has passed away. We need you to come to town. So you start learning and stumbling through. And there's not really a roadmap for how to do that well other than great mentors, right? And um, then when I finally had to deal with my own anxiety, my own struggles, I hadn't slept for years. I've been taking medication that was making me unconscious, but I wasn't getting enough sleep, right? Um, I wasn't taking care of myself well. I wasn't taking care of my relationships. Once I had to process my own stuff, part of my healing journey was I got connected with an old professor of mine, an old psychology professor of mine, who after hours had started working with the police department, one twofold. He felt a calling in his life to go sit with widows and orphans. And police aren't always trained on those things. Firefighters aren't trained on, they're trained on how to show up and put a fire out, how to show up and deal with bad guys. They aren't trained with how to sit and, sit with somebody for a few hours after their kid has just committed suicide in the next room over. Right. And so he just started, he got a police scanner and just started showing up and he showed up and he showed up year after year. And then all of a sudden they put him on the payroll and said, Hey, our cops trust you. And you, you know, this as well as anybody, if a police officer or a firefighter or a pilot, they go to a therapist, man, they can get taken off the beat, man. You can get, you can lose your job or you can get put on administrative duty, sit behind a desk. So he became a safe place for police officers to go check in with, to tell them, hey, my marriage is falling apart. I'm not doing well. And it wouldn't end up in a personnel file. And then he slowly started developing a team of folks who would go out in the middle of the night. We would, I would just get a cell phone text and it would just say 1087 and here's an address. You don't know what you're walking into in some situations. Um, you just know that someone had passed away and you show up and you try to instantly understand how I can be the right person for this moment in this, in this awful, awful situation. Sometimes it's a 95 year old who passed away from old age. And sometimes it was an infant who'd passed away. Sometimes it was a teenage kid who just taken their life and mom showed up. Right. And everything in between. And so that just, that became a healing process for me along with the development of some skills. Most of which dude was shutting my stupid mouth and stop trying to offer a bunch of intellectual answers to people's pain and hurt and just sit there, just show up and be a presence in somebody's darkest moments and then shine a pin light on the next step and the next step and the next step as they slowly get to begin the journey of healing. Yeah, that's an important point. I mean, I talked about that. We had a, I had a guest on Alex Jaber who, her focus, she's a paramedic, but was really about grief counseling, you know, and, yeah. and basically calling, how do you call the code? How do you terminate a code? How do you talk to yeah. the, the parents? But we, you know, the environment they had, especially in fire and EMS is, you know, we, we have a cardiac arrest, it ends. Well, there's a, a dispatch load of calls waiting for us to go to next. So we right. have to be kind of brief, but I think that in, in pre-hospital medicine, that compassion element sometimes gets kind of brushed aside because we have to be in that flow state when we're working the actual medical Absolutely. procedure. Yeah. So someone like you is invaluable. Well, I appreciate that. And it's, um, it's interesting. We've heard all the discussions about police changes and conversation. That's all I knew. That's all I knew because this, this city where I was doing this work had, had a system for Hey, let's bring in folks, social workers and counselors who this is what they do, right? They show up when somebody's too drunk, but they're safe. But how do we help them get them home? How do we help get this person to explain what's about to happen? Because the white van's about this corner is about to show up. 
and here's what you're going to see. Or, hey, you can't go in that room. I can't allow you to have the sight of your loved one etched into your brain forever. And so I'm going to stand here and you and I are going to go walk down the street and you're going to scream and yell and cry. There's, there's, there's not a, there's not a lot of training for that. You guys don't have time, right? You're trying to keep, get somebody a trach line to make sure they're alive and make sure that house is safe and um, make sure that crime's not being committed. Like, so it's getting the right experts in the right room at the right time and um, recognizing everybody's skill set in that moment so that everybody can get onto the next group of people we got to help, right? Now, you mentioned about prior to that working with colleges and universities. So what was that actual role that you held in, in those institutions? It was some various form of dean of students role, whether it's assistant or associate dean of students or the dean of students or the person running all of the residential housing. You know, you take 4,000 college kids or 2,000 college kids and <laughs> you pick them up and put move them from all over the country and you plop them in a box together, man. It's just combustible, right? We all remember college, right? Uh, or you may not, you, or but people remember their military service. We just don't make great decisions when you're 18, 19, 20, 21. You're figuring out how life works. And so the way I would always explain my job to people is I'd tell them the other, uh, what is it? The other 153, right? There's 168 hours in a week. About 15 of those hours, you're in a classroom learning algebra and biology. The other 153 hours, that was my classroom, right? That's where people learn, hey, you probably shouldn't drink that much. Or here's how bad it hurts when somebody, you, your, your fiance breaks up with you or cheats on you, or here's how to get into a fight and not go to jail. And that was my classroom, how to teach young people how to transition from their parents' house to the real world. And I loved it. It was a it was a holy space. It was a thin gray space and it was messy, messy, messy. And, um, but it was always showing up when kids had had too much to drink or had their childhood traumas emerged in a messy situation or they tried drugs for the first time or fill in the blank, any number of things. So I think what I'd love to explore with you, cause you have a lot of experience here, um, you know, a lot of people listening are parents, you know, myself included. And, you know, I've had guests on here from Finland talking about the, the education system there and, you know, how different it is and how holistically they look at the child. And, you know, you look at some of the stresses we have and, you know, these kids are learning just to pass a test versus the yes. learning. Nonsense. So tell me, you know, what are some of the pressures that you've seen, whether it's at the, you know, the K-12 route or even, you know, higher education that are contributing to some of these these, uh, you know, either addiction challenges, mental health challenges. Um, and it's, I'm, I'm fortunate. My wife's got a PhD in curriculum instruction. So she's a K-12 researcher and she's, again, I'm, I'm just lucky to have people who are, have way more. Um, so I've, we've had this conversation from K-12 up and I'm the dad of two little kids. I think it's a hundred different things and you nailed some of them. Some of them is that, we try to create, we, we think the solution to everything is more data crammed into our heads as though you can lift the lid of a trash can and just keep dumping knowledge in there and you close it and you've got a complete person. And that's, it's, it's not psychologically sound. It's not, it's, it's not common sense. It's not biologically sound. It, it makes no sense anywhere other than a group of people who are trying to codify what learning is. And the only, the, the most blunt instrument we got is a test score, right? So we, don't let these kids sleep. We pile, pile, pile stuff on top of them. We don't let them do art or music anymore. We don't let them run around and play anymore. We don't let them just learn to socialize. We don't teach them what emotions and feelings are and how to deal with them. We just say the most important thing in your life 
is getting this number grade at the end of this assignment. All things lead to that road. And if you don't get that number, you're not going to get into pre-algebra. And if you don't get into pre-algebra, you're not going to get into algebra. If you don't get into algebra, you're going to go to a crummy school. And you know what you're going to be? A loser because you're going to have to work with your hands. You're going to have to work outside. You're going to have failed life. And if you don't do this stuff and that ends with $150,000 student loan at some university they can't afford, they don't even know what they want to do until halfway through. And they only figure that out because somebody's friend's dad has a cool job. and That looks cool. Let's try that, right? So we have just abandoned what um, the life of a well human looks like in, in chasing this imaginary college ranking. I have – my son had a first grade – experience where they were asking him to start thinking about what you want to be when you grow up. And I was like, dude, he's six. What are you doing? You know what I mean? He's six. Um, this is when you're exploring how your hands work, right? And how, you know, how, how do you have conversations with somebody? I mean, it, the whole thing is insane, right? And so how do you back out and say, what does a well person look like? And you reverse engineer that. And if we did that, if we just all stopped for a second, um, we'd get a totally different educational product, man. A totally different educational ex- ex- um, experience. And I, my heart breaks for these teachers who are caught in this system. They're trying to love these young people. And they do, they do extraordinary work um, for no money, for no, with no resources. Um, I can't tell you the number of teachers who are out there buying stuff on their own dime just because... They got trying to create a, a home environment for these kids to learn in. Um, and they're trying to do the best they can on this 100-mile-an-hour highway to nowhere, right? Yeah. Well, it's, I had an interesting, you know, I say interesting, actually infuriating um, experience with my son's school about a year ago where he basically, you know, you talk about anxiety. It was more of a kind of depressive episode. He was at his desk. They were doing a visualization exercise, and he ended up being in tears. They ended up Baker acting him, which is, uh, you really? know, yeah, like a, a, you know, three day hold. Um, and while he was there, several other children cycled through from the exact same school. So I've actually had a conversation with their new superintendent the other day, still trying to, trying to fix that. What did you see about the, the ability of mental health counselors, whether it was in the K 12 through your wife or whether it's in the college setting? Oh, man, that's a lot. So school counselors now, are unfortunately do a lot of scheduling a lot they they basically do therapy on the side right and again i've met some of the most extraordinary school counselors on planet earth they're just remarkable and they get shoved into a system where they've got to put kids in classes and checkbox stuff and if somebody gets super outside of the norm right if they get a little bit super off the rails then you can do your little counseling thing but until then we need to get them back into the right um I've seen mental health counselors rise up and do some extraordinary things when there's access, when they um, are allowed to do therapy, when the, when the students can get involved. But if I back out, man, we are in, I, I just occurred to me like a couple of weeks ago, we're in this hotline generation. The f- idea of a hotline is so absurd. You know why we're there, dude? Because we have created ecosystems where we have nobody. We've got nobody to help us change a tire in our driveway. We've got 5,000 friends on the internet, dude, and I've got nobody to help me move my couch because in my living room. we got nobody. we got no 
friends and the data on loneliness is insane. And so the poor schools and the poor governments having to backfill this stuff with, well, here's a hotline to call if you're going to hurt yourself. Thank God we have them. Here's a group of professionalized relationship people because we don't have those, right? We don't have communities. We don't have churches. We don't have schools that we rally around each other. We don't have neighbors anymore. And dude, I got spanked by my neighbors, man. I got chewed out by my neighbors and God help me if my dad found out, not because he'd be mad at them because I'm going to get it. T- like, that's just how I grew up. Those moms and dads that I grew up with of my friends and neighbors, dude, they came and visited me in Nashville. That's how connected we all are. And that just doesn't exist anymore. How dare you talk to my kid, right? How dare you yell at my child when they're being an idiot and going to get themselves killed, right? So we just don't have that, man. So I think counseling, that's what I do. I love it. It's a substitute for a community that cares for everybody, right? It's the, it's the next step. Does it work? Oh my gosh, that's incredible, man. And I've watched this. I was a part of a... Um, a team here. I watched a, a counseling group reinvent itself there at the university. I worked here in Nashville. I'm talking about legends, brother. They changed everything about how they operated and how they worked in order to serve these students. And they did remarkable work. But a lot of that remarkable work was getting them, young people in the room with other young people, just like them to stare at each other and talk to one another and realize you're not alone. You're not nuts. Everybody's experiencing this. And they all go, <sighs> wow. Right. It's like, it's like a CISM is a critical incident stress debrief, right? After an incident with firefighters, when you all sit in a circle and be like, are you okay? Are you okay? What did you see? What did you experience? And it norms it for folks. And there's something collective about that healing process so that we can go out there and do it again. Right. And we just don't have that with kids anymore. We tell them your grades are on you. You get it. You're the one guy's got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you go knock that guy out by yourself. And man, these kids are just dying of loneliness. They're dying on the vine, man. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that's the same even in, you know, the adult world as well. And we've lost the ability to form tribes. You know, that whole phrase, it takes a village, you know, and then it's it's finger pointing. Well, it's not us. It's not the school. It's the parent. Well, it's not the parent. It's the school. And it's like, no, it's all of us. It's everyone. It's everybody. Yeah, exactly. And I'll say this. Here's what's magic, man. Uh, my wife and I moved back in August to a new, like the other side of town here, um, about an hour away from where we were, which in Nashville is still the same city. We moved to a smaller school. It is magic. It is magic. Um, the teachers are teaching. They've lit a fire under the heart of my son. And my son grows up in a house of nerds, man. He grows up in a house of teachers. Uh, I was a professor. My wife's a professor and teacher. Um, but we were not able to light the fire like this teacher has and that teacher has. And now he's reading things and asking questions and and so there are magic schools out there that are community focused and that are learning focused and they're letting these kids run around outside and they're making sure you're going to play an instrument and you're going to go be on a team. And it's doing these things that these kids need to be doing. So, man, there are schools figuring it out and there are schools trying to say, hey, are recognizing, dude, we're hurting more people than we're helping. We got to do this thing differently. Yeah. No, I think, and again, I think that's what the Finnish model is so successful at. It's not that they have some amazing, you know, math formula they teach. It's that they look at these kids as a, as a human being, you know, and they, they have programs where if a kid maybe isn't having as much support at home, that they step in and they bolster that, you know, so they're, they're looking at the whole child. Another area, and again, it'd be interesting to get your take on this, whether it's pre-graduation from high school or even, even the college level. Um, I had no idea. And when you look, back it makes perfect sense but the stress of graduation like all right you've been in school for your whole basically your whole life as far as you can remember and on this day 
the doors are locking behind you and you got to go get a job. I had a guest, uh, Emma Benoit, successful in every way, cheerleader, very pretty, I mean, you name it. And she was just crippled, you know, by that. She just didn't know what she wanted to do. It seemed like everyone else had it sorted out. She ended up shooting herself and surviving, ended up in a, uh. a wheelchair initially, but amazing human being. But I didn't really think about that. Like, you know, and in England, it's 16 that we graduate. So what have you seen wow. as far as that? Like, you know, the, the, the concept that at 16 or 18, you're going to understand exactly what your career path is going to be the rest of your life. Um, it's, it begs the question, why do so many ancient civilizations have some sort of transitory experience collective experience that that 16 17 18 19 20 year olds all go through whether it's um you're gonna do a year serving your community at the age of 18 you're gonna like some sort of civil service right you're gonna go build roads we're gonna teach you a trade you're gonna do some stuff or whether it's mandatory military service or something something that gives you everybody's doing this you're all gonna serve and then you're gonna go build a life based on your service not Hey, 17-year-old, what are you going to do the rest of your life? Tell me, tell me, tell me. By the way, it's going to cost you 150 grand to go all in. Uh, go figure it out. Ready to go. Man, how we don't <laughs> we don't let 18-year-olds buy cigarettes because we've all collectively decided as a society their brains aren't smart enough to do that. We don't let them buy lottery tickets cuz it on the off chance an 18-year-old wins 100 million dollars, we all have agreed they're not going to do good by that. We wait. You have to be 21 to buy beer, dude. But we give a 17 year old a hundred thousand dollars and say, go get them, make good choices with this money, right? Go, go figure it out. And then we get mad at them for running up debt and we get mad at them for not graduating on a certain amount of time. So I think we have this illusion that, um, we, we want both. And we want to be free of these 18 year olds. We want to move out of our house. So me and my wife can get our life back, whatever that looks like. We want as a society to say, you're an adult now, make adult choices, which also means we can draft you and send you to war. And we want to recognize the brain science that says, you're still a child and we need to have more directives, more di we need to give you more guidance than we're actually giving you. And it's both and, right? And it's all of that all in one big mush. And we've got to have some leadership and some accountability and really people just having some hard truths with one another and saying the way we're doing this isn't working, man. Um, it works for some, it worked for me, but it didn't, but it did, right? So it works for some, but it, how can we just stop for a second and say, man, how is this serving all of us? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you mentioned, again, your your anxiety struggle. So I'd love to kind of, you know, be led down the road of that and then, you know, what your kind of lowest moment was and how you found your way out of that. Yeah, man. Um, so it's, I mean, it's really that, Dude, I started on a on a journey, on a trajectory. You can do whatever you want, which means I can do whatever I want. And um, really what I was chasing was external external solutions to internal challenges, man. Like I I was an idiotic 22-year-old. I was a moronic 19-year-old. I was a loudmouth, brash, idiot 21-year-old, 24-year-old, 27-year-old. And um, so all the time I'm trying to, hey, if she'll date me, I'll be okay. If I make these behavioral choices, I'm going to be better than other people. If I get this job and make this money, if I get this new fill in the blank, dude, um, then I'm going to quote unquote be okay. 
And I think the great illusion is there is no there, right? The bar moves every time you get there. Every time you bench press 200 pounds, the next question is, well, can you do 205? And can you do 250? And wow, I got a buddy who can do 270. Can you do that? Right? It never stops, right? And so, man, I was chasing and chasing and chasing. And I was fortunate to have really great parents. I was fortunate to have extraordinary professors. I was a, fortunate to have really great community members. And I had a great work ethic. And so... um you just keep plugging along and suddenly I'm on a trajectory that's, Hey man, you're the youngest kid in the room by a decade and you got graduate school behind you now. And you got a spouse that's at home working really hard. And so you don't have to worry about money and uh, you ha you have money worries. Right. But like we, I'm saying like we made 30,000 bucks, no money worries. Right. Not like we're rich, but we can eat and you can pay your rent. And man, then it becomes about how can I be seen? How can I find, if there's a stage, I want to be on it. Hey, we need someone to cover this new area. I got it. I got it. Right. And so, man, I just was slowly starting to spin out. And you've probably heard me say all anxiety, dude, is all it is, is an alarm system. It's just letting your body know that you're not safe. You're don't have any community around you. You just woke up and your tribe's gone. And that means you're probably going to die. Um, or you are in a situation where you don't have any control. And I, every time that alarm would get a little bit louder, the way I would try to double down on control was, get another promotion, make a little bit more money, get somebody else to tell me that I'm good, win another award, um, get somebody else to tell me that I did a great job on some stage somewhere. And I was just trying to earn it, earn it, earn it. And I'm going to go to another hospital until another kid, I'm going to skip another night of sleep because that's what the cool guys who are crushing and killing it do. And I'm going to go do another workout and run another 10K, whatever the thing was, dude. And eventually you can deal with your body or at some point your body will deal with you. And the, the, while I'm succeeding in my professional life and my, my personal life slowly falling apart here, what I, the story I never told anybody was, dude, I was convinced my house was falling apart. I was seeing little stress cracks in the foundation and in the corners of the doors and things. And I was convinced my house was imploding. And I was convinced that the economy was right around 2010, 11, right? Eight, nine, when the world imploded. And I thought I was timing the next market collapse. And we had so much debt around our housing. They were going to have to nationalize housing. And I had this back of the napkin math, dude. And I was figuring it all out. James, I was insane. I did not know. So over here, I'm doing death notifications and I'm sitting with people in the hospital and I'm leading a big team. I've got millions of dollars that I'm responsible for at work. And over here, I'm like, Hey, I think my house is falling apart. I'd call a contractor over and they'd be like, bro, you're nothing's wrong with your house. They, you know, when a, when a contractor in Texas won't take your money, you know, there's nothing wrong. And, um, but I would be, it would drive off and I'd say, dude, dude, doesn't know what he's talking about, man. That guy's an idiot. And it starts getting louder and louder. And for me, I finally sold my house. My family and I moved into a dorm. We had six figures of student loan debt. Uh, I wasn't in a safe place. I had a new kid. We'd had years of not being able to have kids. And suddenly I've got a son and um, my wife is having to create an alt universe for her and my child because dude, I wasn't a safe person to be around. I was bananas, man. And then one day I was walking to work. And by this time I'm over so much and so many people, I could literally not go to work for a week and no one would know where I was. They would just assume I was in another meeting, do another thing. And brother, I just turned around and walked back and got in my car and drove to another city where I had a buddy who was a medical doctor. It's one of those great 
life privileges. I just stumbled in. He's a doctor. And I walked into his office down the hallway and busted into his office. And I was like, brother, I'm not doing well. I need you to sit here and listen to me, man. I'm not okay. And that's one of those moments of grace you get. And he talked to me for two and a half hours, no appointment, no schedule, no nothing. He just sat there and talked to me and he said, you're not okay, man. And that was the first moment I'd said those words out loud. I didn't tell my wife where I was going. I didn't tell anybody. I just left. And um, that started a whole journey to on a whole different trajectory for me. Now, up to that point, had you felt like you could tell anyone else or was he the first person that was just that perfect positive storm of, of the right background and allowing enough time to you completely un, unpeel the onion, as it were? What? When you're super depressed or you're super anxious, if you think about those things as alarms letting you know that you're disconnected from other people, normally what we do is we start trying to yell louder than the alarms to get the attention of other people. And what that does is drives them away, right? We become insufferably hard to be around. We become aggressive or we become like we drag from the down, the one down position, right? We become insufferable. Oh, well, okay, I guess if... They're more important than you, right? We become this, but it's our way of trying to get control. We become loud. I had become the guy in every meeting when someone was saying something positive. Oh yeah, but that could go really sideways. It could go awful, right? Do we have a plan for this? Like it, it really hammering people on their integrity and character. But I had no business doing that, man. I just became an, a psychopath. And, um, but here's the thing. I showered and I went to work every day. Nobody knew, but they knew I was hard to be around. I was annoying and frustrating. I had to be right. I had to be loud. I had to be fill in the blank, man. Um, and so the w one of the earlier gifts was I, I had an experience with a monk. And I know that sounds so cliche and cheesy. He was a professor. He was an ethic, a biomedical ethics professor and a theology professor. And when school was out, he would head to the hills and just go live in a monastery. And we started meeting once a week for a year and me and him and another guy, another attorney. And we met every, just, and that was my foray back into what community could look like. Here is a safe place where you can say what's ever on your heart and mind. I didn't trust it at first. It took me months and months to practice being vulnerable. I watched these other two powerful men be vulnerable. And I slowly started realizing, hey, I can say these things out loud. And that was when I realized, oh, dude, you're not okay. <laughs> you're not doing good, man. Um, and so that was the practice. And then slowly the cracks in the dam started to form. And that's when I got in the car and, and drove somewhere else. And here's the thing, man. It didn't all end beautifully. Uh, we took a $70,000 household income pay cut to go to another city to work at another university where I had a smaller set of responsibilities and my wife transitioned careers. I mean, it wasn't like it, it wasn't a parade when I got done. I had, we had some hard life choices to make. And um, that's when I started working with the crisis team in this new city. I, I went and got a second PhD in counseling. I had to know what was going on in my head. So I went down another rabbit hole. It ended up being the most extraordinary journey. But man, in real time, it was hard. It was hard. Well, you talk about that in the book about controlling your ecosystem. I think what's very pertinent about that, I actually retired from the fire service because that last department, that last ecosystem was very toxic. And I did a huge amount to try and bring as many changes and, you know, and, and be the, the person implementing the changes, not just, you know, push it on someone else. And it just didn't work. And it made me, you know, extremely unhappy. And I could see the, you know, the stresses and it was kind of then, manifesting in the home because I was pissed off when I came home. Yeah, um, yeah. So talk to me about that. You know, when when someone, it, it 
how do you step back and look around and realize that maybe if you, even though obviously we carry a lot of our problems with us, sometimes your actual environment can be contributing or magnifying the stresses that you're going through? I, I think it almost always is, almost 100% of the time. The, the current environment plus the bricks you've got in your backpack that you've carried from previous environments, from your childhood trauma, from the tools your parents did or didn't have, the way they raised you, your dad didn't show up, your mom didn't show up, somebody abused you, you're in some sort of underrepresented or underprivileged group where you've got systemic you know, racism or systemic poverty. These things are all super real and super true. And then they show up in, boom, job B, right? And that boss talks to you in a certain way that sets off every alarm you've got. And what we're trained to do nowadays is to go after the boss. That's our first thing we do is attack our ecosystem. We go to war with it or we try to shut the alarm off, right? So the way I explain depression, anxiety, it's like getting, it's like your house is on fire and your smoke alarm's going off in your kitchen and you and your therapist and like your girlfriend climb up on a ladder and you spend some time trying to get the batteries out of the smoke alarm as though the alarm's the problem, right? That's what we try, that's what addiction does for us. That's what a new girlfriend or a new boyfriend or, you know, pornography or a new job and a new job and a new job or a new keto diet or a new CrossFit workout. We're trying to punt. We're trying to find healing externally. Or you can listen to that alarm and say, hey, what's that trying to tell me? Oh, dude, the house is on fire. We got to deal with that, right? And that means sometimes I got to get out of the house. That means everything I love is burning to the ground. That means I got to go call somebody like you who knows what they're doing to come put this fire out because I can't do it, right? That's a much more humble response. That's a much more powerless response. And that's not how what our ego says. Our ego tells us that every problem we have is somebody else's fault. Every problem we have, somebody else did to you. And so your solution is to either shut the alarm or yell and go to war. And so anytime somebody's depressed, anytime somebody's um, feeling anxious, I want them to stop what they're doing, dude, and just listen to the, what the alarms are trying to tell you. And sometimes, like you like you experienced, it sucks because they're telling you, you got to get another job. You got to leave this. You've tried to make changes here and it's not working. And so now what's happening is you're melting your family. You're melting your own internal biology. You're choosing to die young. You're choosing for your organs to fail on you down the road. You're choosing to have to find addictions to cover up this pain. Just leave, man. And it cost us a lot of money. It cost us living in a residence hall, dude, with 180 college kids, right? But it also, we learned we can do a lot. And we learned that community and relationships and smiles and saying, hey, how are you all the time? Actually, is pretty therapeutic. And we learned that we can live with a lot less than we thought. And 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 the, the, the benefits are... We paid off everything we owed, right? In that one year living in a residence hall, we paid off everything. And so now I can do whatever I want because I don't owe anybody any money. It, it changed the entire trajectory, right? But it's stopping and saying, hey, what are these alarms telling me? Sometimes, James, it's you had 18 cups of coffee and your heart's racing. Stop drinking so much caffeine, idiot, right? That's I'm talking to myself. Or last night, I just busted open awake at 1 p.m. And you may have this as a, as a former fireman. I know you've experienced this. I knew at 1 a.m. when I woke up, I'm done for the night. I knew it. And so I've spent years going to war. I've been trying to fight it, roll around to be angry. I just got up in red last night, man. I'm not going to fight it because tonight I'm going to work out. I'm going to sleep just fine tonight. And so I'm going to stop going to war with everything. And sometimes it's old traumas I haven't dealt with. Sometimes I got to sit down and apologize to 
an old friend that I hurt. I've got to apologize to my wife. I've got to tell my kids I, I wish I'd responded better. Um, I've got to take another class on learning how to be a better dad. It, it's what can I do to to address these alarms, not to cover them up. Beautiful. Well, that's such a great explanation. Thank you. Um, one area that, that really kind of jumped off the page with me as well is you talked about using medication to, to, to dull those alarms a little bit. And what I thought was such an important and pertinent point is you said that you didn't want to take medication unless there was an exit strategy attached to it. And I think that's so important, not just with mental health medication, but chronic disease management medication too. Yeah. So, man, you talk about we talk about school, this would be a whole other podcast, but we've, man, we got really excited when we got MRI machines and we got really excited when we got fMRI machines, especially. And we got really excited when we start being able to measure chemistry, body chemistry. And then we thought we'd solve these problems. And I really high five the people, the medical researchers who are in the trenches trying to figure this stuff out. How extraordinary, man, to think I just stumbled on the chemical that's going to solve hatred. I'm going to solve depression. I just did it, man. I, I applaud that. But here's the thing, man. We've had psychotropic medication for 25, 30 years. And everything about depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, everything about chronic disease, strokes, heart attacks, it's just on a vertical trend line. It's going up and up and up and up and up. And so... Man, we know how to cure strep. You take a Z-Pak, dude. You take antibiotic and it goes away like in three or four days. If depression was cured by medication overnight, if anxiety was cured permanently through medication, dude, we would have none. We've got the meds now. What we realized is, man, in a short season, medication can help turn that alarm down so that I can do the actual healing work, which is get in a community, find some people I can be vulnerable with, start to move my body, get out from under my covers, um, actually look at my ecosystem and make those hard decisions, which you can't, man, if we've all been in the buildings when the uh, fire alarms are going off, you can't think, man, you can't send a text message, you can't email. It's so loud. It's designed to get you out of the building. And man, once we can turn those alarms a little bit down, and that's what meds do. Um, Johan Hari's book, uh, here I am promoting somebody else's book, um, called Lost Connections. It's just a masterpiece. And it just step-by-step step walks through, man, those, those they are band-aid. They'll stop the blood for a season, but they don't heal that wound, man. And um, almost all the time, there are a few, of course, medical medical situations for depression, anxiety, some of those things that medication long-term, that's just going to be your story. It's just not for so, so, so many people. Well, you mentioned Johan Hari, Lost Connections and Chasing the Scream are two of the most yeah. amazing books I've ever read. He actually is on the yeah. show. Well, and what, what does it take for some – it really took – dude, there is some dismal trash when it comes to investigative journalism into medical journalism, right? There's some so much garbage out there. But when you get somebody who does it well, Gary Tobbs is another one. He's done it. Um, I just purchased a book the other day by a guy who's uh, called Endure. I forgot the name of the author who's talking about running and human performance. Man, when you get somebody who's not in the medical field to step back and go, hey, 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 look at what we're doing. Man, it was like a light bulb. Um, it's just such a beautiful, and Gabor Mate, Dr. Mate wrote Scattered and um, it was a Chasing Hungry Ghost. Some of those guys who stepped back and said, what are we doing? We are putting these kids, we are putting ourselves in these ecosystems that 
our bodies are designed to, to tell us we're not okay. And then we're blaming the alarms. And then we've created entire industries to shut the alarms down instead of just, man, what, what if we, uh, what if we just ate well and we moved our bodies and we had really great sex with one person over the arc of our entire life. And we had friends that we could say, Hey, I really screwed this up. And we could have friends that I said, Hey, uh, I'm doing pretty good. How are you? Hey, you can sleep at my house. I got extra food. You want me to share? What if we just live that way, man? And oh, cool. You're a blacksmith. I don't know how to do that. I can write code and I don't know how to do that, but I can fight a fire. Sweet. Man, then you're talking about true healing from the inside out. Absolutely. And it's, it's funny because you meant, mentioned Dr. Gawa Mate as well. I think that one of the ways we would change the world if we looked at the um, prohibition of drugs as a mental health element, you know, as, as Johan talks about, and we started healing people rather than imprisoning people, I think that would be game changing. Yeah. And that goes back to those lessons, man. What a blessing. What a, a gift I had as a child to have a dad already back in the 70s going, hey, wait a minute, man. Like, this guy was set up to fail. And then and then we told him to start running and then we tripped him and we're like, ah, you fell. You're going to prison forever. Right, man. And I don't even know how, if my dad understood how far ahead of the time he was with his thinking, man. But, um, yeah, that's, that's, it's a gift. Absolutely. Well, tell me about how you got to where you are now. So you wrote the book, uh, redefining anxiety. So how did you get to writing the book? How did you get to working with Dave Ramsey? Uh, man. So, backing up a little bit, one of my big paranoias when I was unwell, I was a part of a think tank about the future of higher ed. And there were some folks that we were interacting with that were on the board with Google and Apple and Pearson. And uh, they were really creating the future of tomorrow. And this was going on. And I was called to testify in a criminal trial against a former student who had, man, he'd really messed up. And Dude, I was sitting in court. Now, we all know this happens now, but back then we didn't. And they pulled his Facebook page down in court and we're putting his private messages on to read in the court. And I remember looking at a lawyer next to me saying, Hey, how did, how did they get those are private messages? And I'll never forget this lawyer laughed and was just like, Oh, oh there is no such thing as a private message. And I was like, wait, 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 what? And then I'm on the think tank on the other side during my day job where we're there, we're looking at how they're, they're mining our emails and our text messages and they're trying to get smart purchases so they can tell you what you want to buy before you even know you want to buy it. And they're using this color font to get you to think you're to trick your amygdala into thing. You have a, you have a crisis and the only way to solve this crisis is to buy this thing. And we're so, yeah. So I was like, what is happening? So I was, man, I had one goal in life, brother. That was to not exist on the internet at all. I wanted to get, um, my counseling, my PhD in counseling, I want to get licensed and I wanted to be the guy that was behind closed doors to help folks. And until I was doing that, I was working at colleges. I loved working with college students and their families, helping them be well in these wild systems. And I entered into, I moved to Nashville. My dude, when I moved here, my marriage was a wreck. Um, I got here to work at Belmont university, which is just this world-class extraordinary college. It's just full of artists and thinkers and medical. It's just a, a, it's a magical place. Um, my marriage was a wreck. I had just moved here. I cut ties with 20 and 30 and 40 year friendships move here. And they say, Hey, you got to give a speech on Monday 
um, for your vision. And I was like, dude, I just worked here four days. I don't have a vision. I don't even know, I don't even know where the bathroom is. And they said, well, sorry. Well, then, boom, my wife's grandmother dies. We have to fly back to where we just moved from. We took separate planes back, man. It was rough. And during the course of that, that time back, I was like, what am I doing, man? And so I came back, got on stage, and gave this heartfelt talk. It was not the traditional, um, you know, you're dropping your kids off and we're a great... It wasn't that. It was, hey, you need to get your heads right, man. And parents, you're failing your kids. Hey, kids, y'all are failing. Like, we all have to be better. And um, I'd never really given a talk like that. I was usually towing the company line and um, ended up at a standing ovation. It was just this cheesy moment snapshot. But Dave Ramsey's executive VP was in the audience dropping her daughter off. And she said, I'm hiring that guy. And we need someone who's going to talk that passionately about getting your life right and getting well and getting whole and not in this traditional political, partisan, nonsensical, you're either this or that man, that's just not serving anybody. Yelling at other people is not helping anymore. And so, um, man, they, uh, Dave tells what a great salesman he is, man. You get behind closed doors and you're going to lose that engagement when Dave's selling you on something. And so I'd worked my entire career to get to a job like Belmont. And, um, man, we, my wife and I looked at this opportunity to do something that I was the scariest thing possible, which was to create a online presence and to be a public face when I had, committed my life to being the opposite of that. And this was the scariest, most terrifying thing. And it was also, man, if guys in my situation don't get in the middle of this mess, it's never going to get better. And so how do we model and honor what getting well looks like? How do we tell our stories authentically? And how do we listen to people who are underwater and, and extend a hand and say, hey, there's another way we can do this thing called life and we can do it together in a way that's... Um, more intellectually honest and it's harder and messier, but it's truer. And so my wife and I are like, let's do it. Let's go all in. And, um, it's been a magical ride since then. And so then I got here and somebody on the radio was like, I've got anxiety. And I popped off at the mouth. I said something like, that's not even the problem. And off air, Dave was like, well, you're going to write a book about that. And <laughs> so we wrote a quick little, I mean, it's like a grad school paper. It's 80 pages. And then all of a sudden it made the bestseller list. And I didn't know what to do with it, man. I was like, what is happening? Um, and that's when I realized, man, I'd spent so much of my life with academics and we've been running around these problems in our minds and our heads and researching them. But there was just a single mom trying to get through tomorrow and say, what am I supposed to do? And because I was being so hoity toity and hiding that conversation with my friends I, or that single dad who's, you know, he's driving a truck, man, he just wants to love his son better. He doesn't have the tools. How do I do that? those are folks, man, that are just dying on the vine and they're being forced to choose this party or that party or swipe Instagram. And we got to do a, a, a better job of getting involved in their lives. And so here we are, man, trying to do the best we can. And I may get fired tomorrow, but um, we're going to go down swinging, right? Beautiful. Well, I'm no, ready. we're not. We're not. We're going to go down hugging. I'm there tired of swinging. I'm tired <laughs> of fighting. We're going to go down with a shovel in hand and a trash sack trying to pick up the litter in our neighborhood. And we're going to try to make it better, man. There we go. I love that. Well, the book was fantastic. Like I said, I, I read it and, um, it really is just, you know, just, just down and dirty. You know, it's just, just, yeah. you know, a little glimpse into your experience, some anecdotes thrown in there, some tools people can use. So I thought it was fantastic. Um, I, I appreciate that, man. I want to make sure that we mention, uh, Will. So Will McKamey, the uh, CEO of Thorn, who, who, uh, I love their yeah. stuff. Yeah. You, know, you talk about exercise being a positive thing for you. Yeah. Um, 
how did you discover them and tell me about you know which supplements of theirs you use for your own personal physical and mental health oh man will's awesome um so uh, i mean it's a heartbreaking story it, he's a guy who made a, a remarkable impact on my life and he just passed away tragically just a few days ago um a guy named mark rogers um we were having a conversation back in Texas and he was very into nutrition, very into exercise. He was a triathlete. Um, and he said, man, you know, what's really freaking people out in the nutrition space is man, if you will eat whole foods and you will take a few of the right supplements and you will have great relationships and like your life will just begin to heal itself. And I was like, wow, really? And so then I started reading and I got caught up with the Nassim Taleb's and the Gary Tobbs and Mark Rogers, of course, who was a personal coach there for me. And um, then Ben Greenfields and kind of found my way through. You can't have a conversation about what wellness looks like with sleep and what is the gas. People take better care of their trucks, the engines, and they do their own bodies. Right. And man, if I, I now have it dialed in, dude, that if I have eat the wrong food on Friday night. I am making a decision to be worse father Saturday. I am because I'm not going to sleep well. I'm going to toss and turn. I'm going to wake up grumpy. I'm going to have to have an extra cup of coffee. I'm going to be a little bit short with my kids. And, and, and there we go, right? So along that way, figuring out what the right foods were, was realizing what we've done to the food system and partridge in a pear tree. That's a whole other podcast. But man, there are a few supplements Science is really good, man. And you can get really dialed in. And that started me down a rabbit hole of and just going to Walmart and buying vitamin D versus going to Thorn, right? Which has purified this stuff, has uh, the doctors and medical researchers that are, that are checking into this, making sure it's right and it's pure and it's good and they stand by the product. Then it started saying, man, there's a totally different feeling when I take the right supplements with the wrong supplements and the difference between getting a good night's sleep and not, et cetera. So, um, man, I've been a thorn guy through and through and through for years. Um, almost, almost proselytizing. So, um, in fact, found the guys here at the office, when I started working here, like, Hey, what's up must you take? And, um, it turned into a whole thing. And now it's fun to watch. It's like, we're running a pyramid scheme for Thorn, man. Cause then I saw somebody get a thorn box and they had two new people in their office and they're explaining it to them. So, um, I'm always experimenting N equals one with myself. I'm going to try this, try that. Last night, like I say, I had a night I woke up at 1 a.m. And now I know I'm not going to take that. And again, before I sleep, I don't get frustrated anymore. Um, probably the most common things I, I spent years t with their, um, uh, what do you call it? Their multivitamin, their morning and night. Multivitamin is just world class. It's the best there is on the market, period, bar none. Um, the things I go back to over and over is their vitamin D K2, especially in the winter out here. Um, it gets really gray in Nashville and I'm from Texas. I'm used to sun. Um, I do take their hemp oils world-class and just helps keep my anxiety alarm dialed back. Um, their vitamin C and their zinc, dude, I can kind of get down the road, but when it comes to sleep, their melatonin and their GABA is again, world-class. And then we're trying a few other things here and there. Um, I love their... I love their creatine product. I love their um, multiple kinds of uh, magnesium products that they got. So um, I'm just, I'm kind of a, I should probably be wearing a thorn t-shirt here. They don't give me any money or anything, but man, I, I'm all, I just love what they're doing in the world, which is if you will take the right supplements and it, some supplement companies are all about this will change your life. And they are very much, this is a piece of a bigger puzzle for you. That's going to include movement 
and exercise and actually dialing into your body and find out what it needs and what seasons and things like that. And again, it's like here at, at Ramsey, how many of us go through life and don't even make a stupid budget? And then we're pissed that we're broke all the time or that we're all in debt and we don't have any retirement savings. And Dave's all about, dude, just be intentional with your life, man. Thorn is very much the same way when it comes to just get to know your body and where you're from and what you're made of and what your goals are and what you want to do. And man, we've got something that is going to be world-class for you wherever you're headed. So I love them. Beautiful. Well, I'm just always curious whether it's Thorn, whether it's 511. Um, they're a sponsor of the show, but I sought out my sponsors. I've used their stuff and was like, they'd be a good person to bring to everyone else. So yeah. I, this- and I'm, in the, hey, I'm in the same boat, man. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to sign up for something that I don't send to my family members, right? Absolutely. All right. Um, I know we're at the hour mark. Do you have a few minutes to do some closing questions? Come on, man. Let's do it. Beautiful. All right. So the first one I love to ask, so your book is Redefining Anxiety, and we'll get to where people can find that in a moment. Are there any other books, and you've mentioned quite a few already in the in the conversation, that you love to recommend to people? It can be related to our discussion today or completely oh, unrelated. Whew, those are good. Um, I... The best book on sex and intimacy for couples is Come As You Are by Emily Nagotsky. Um, It is a book on women's sexuality that I think everybody should read, but it is world class. Um, I always want to recommend Dave's Total Money Makeover book. It is clear and it's over the top and it is direct, but millions and millions and millions of people have gotten out of debt on a plan and it's it's just like an exercise plan when you go down a plan to get well financially or emotionally or spiritually psychologically it infects every other part of your life because it's just this magic of intentionality and this magic of you can't do life by yourself and so this book is a i mean just millions of people have changed their whole family tree because they put a stick in the ground and say no more right um it allowed me to take a crazy mid-life professional gamble by quitting my dream school, my dream job to come do something nuts because I don't owe anybody money and I got an emergency fund, right? So if this goes sideways, my wife and I'll be like, well, that was crazy and stupid. Let's go do so. Let's go back to, you know what I mean? So it gives you so much flexibility. It makes you anti-fragile to quote Nassim Taleb. That book, Anti-Fragile is a masterpiece. It's it's thick to get through. Um, uh, what's it? What's the just trying to think of some books scattered by Gabor Mate in the realm of hungry go anything by Gabor Mate is remarkable. And dude, I don't be cheesy, man, but uh, maybe the best mental health book I read in 2020 was, <laughs> you're going to laugh, Discipline Equals Freedom by Jocko. Um, that is a simple book. It's it's written, the, the typing is almost assault. Like I'm going to, Jocko is going to, we're going to be at an event together here in a, in a month. I'm going to be like, dude, who designed this? It's just so Jocko, right? But if you get beneath the, the snap into a slim gym flex of it. <laughs> it's very much, hey, yes, yesterday sucked and it was hard. Yes, this is brutal. And you got to get up today and make some decisions, right? Um, that con- that continual loop back to what can you control today? Your thoughts and your actions and your choices. Go, go, go. You got to have community. It just re- it, it recycles it for me in a really, really important way. And then, hey, here's the last one that I've recommended a million times. Um, uh, and the Dean Burke Harris, it's a book, um, it's called the deepest well, and it's about childhood trauma and aces, adverse childhood experiences, which is a master, master, masterpiece. And, um, uh, finding meaning by, uh, David Kessler. It's a book on grief. What happens when it all falls apart? And it's, 
it's the single best book on grief I've ever read in my life. And I pass it out like candy. Ah, I don't want to talk about it by Terrence real. Every man on planet should read that book too. <laughs> I probably, I read too much, man. I don't have a lot of friends. <laughs> I, just, I just read a lot. I don't want to talk about it. That'd be number one. That's number one on the list. Beautiful. Well, that's, I mean, so many titles there. Some like I've, I've got Jocko's one right in front of me. I don't know if you could tell because my camera's so crap. It's uh, okay, yeah, yeah. a silhouette there, but, um, but yeah, but there's some other ones. I mean, um, Garbors and, you know, Anti-Fragile. So there's some great titles there. So thank for you so much. For spiritual folks, uh, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. That's another masterpiece. Yeah. If you're, um, if you're spiritually minded, that's a, that's an extraordinary read too. I'll stop now, man. I can do this all day with you. No, that's annoying. beautiful. No, it's not annoying at all. This is all, you know, homework for people listening. Yeah. Um, what about a movie and or documentary? Mm. Dude, you're all about it, man. You know, a documentary that changed my life in a powerful way was um, Super Size Me. And it not in the traditional way, right? I think anybody with any sort of computational power in their brain would know that McDonald's is, they didn't even, they weren't trying to be healthy, right? They were trying to be convenient and inexpensive and fast. Um, but it walked me through step-by-step step an N equals one life. Here's what a life of intentionality looks like. Here's what a life of trying things out with your body. Don't just take everybody's word for it. Actually dig in. And it started a thing in my house. It was awesome, man, for, for <laughs> months, if not years, Every month, my wife would come in and be like, exasperated, like, what are, what are we this month? And I'm like, we are raw vegan. And she's like, <laughs> oh, oh, okay, well, okay. We're keto, all in, all in. No sugar, no grain, we're doing this. She's like, oh, she was such a great sport. Um, but I kept spreadsheets, dude. I had my own blood glucose monitor back years ago. I was just a loser. I was such a dork. But I wanted to know what is my body actually doing? How do I actually feel? And we're terrible at remembering and we're terrible at like, I think I only had five cheeseburgers last month. No, dude, you had 28, right? So um, that I just liked the how he handled that. That So that that is a classic. Um, movie that was really important to me. Oh, boy, dude. Um, sheesh. Kind of a nerd when it comes. I'm going to go back to the old days, man. Um, Goodwill Hunting and Stand By Me. Those are two movies that seem very, very different, but here's where they're at their core. Four friends that figure out life together and you've got to have friends in your life. Stand By Me is my favorite movie of all time. Good Will Hunting's right there behind it. Those two masterpieces. Um, Requiem for a Dream is a ringside seat to addiction. Here's what this looks like. And here's what happens when things that don't make sense start making sense in the mind of an addicted person. And I love it because it tells three different stories. It's got the traditional heroin addiction, but then it's got love addiction, and then it's got food addiction, and then it's got media addiction. It's just Darren Aronofsky. It's a masterpiece there. And then the uh, movie that really knocked me on my socks back in the day was American History X which was an unflinching, um, it asks two hard questions. Is your hatred for other people, whoever they are, is it making your life better? And the answer to that question is always universally no. Finding somebody new to hate never solves anything. It makes you feel powerful for a second and it's a drug. And so, uh, and then the second thing was, man, the power of group think when you get on a train, man, it's so hard to get off that train. So those are some powerful, important um, uh, movies that impacted me back in my younger days. 
Beautiful. Another amazing list. I love the, the reasons behind them. So thank you. All right. Next question. Is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated <sighs> professions of the world? Man. Yes. 100%. His name is Dr. Andy Young. And he is the, the, he is the guy who trained me on being a crisis responder Here's what being a dad looks like. Um, he was my personal counselor for a season. Uh, he played an important role in my life. And um, uh, But he is actually built one of these systems for first responders from the floor up. And so he can speak as an insider. He can speak as the head of a SWAT team at the hostage negotiation. He can speak as the guy who trains cops with the mental health police officer courses and he deals with the police officers who've been to shootings and been involved in shootings and how are they and their families. He does counseling, but he's, he's the, he's the savant and he's done it both behind closed doors with a single individual officer. And he's also helped change entire cities, the way they approach the wellness of their officers and the wellness of their community all at the same time. And, um, he's a really remarkable human being. Beautiful. Thank you. I think another yeah. person, I don't know if this is uh, someone you'd be able to help me with, but I think Dave would be a good one too because Hey, Dave would be man, yes. Yeah. Our 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 community is not known for being well paid. So a yeah, lot of us yeah. I think one of the contributing factors is financial and I know many of uh you know, many of my friends have used this system very successfully. Yeah. Well and and I think it's important to note they did a study here a few years ago on millionaires. And if I'm not mistaken, um the top two or three, like you've got millionaires, but the very tip top of one of the most common millionaires in the, in the United States is teachers. Number three, right? Most common millionaire in the United States is teachers, right? And so it was one of those stop the presses. What are you talking about, man? I thought it was going to be bankers and lawyers and surgeons and stuff. Teachers, living below your means, not getting impressed with more this is and more that, just continually chipping away over time. Um, Dave says all the time, he reads the book, The Tortoise and the Hare every year. And every time the stupid tortoise always wins that race, just keeps going, right? And man, the cops I, I've grown up around, they're, they're my friends, they're my community. You know, you know what they love? They love a new gun and they love new fancy sunglasses and new shoes and new cars and big Jeeps and big tires. And they love their kids to go to whatever games and season tickets that, and it's this lifestyle and it's, man, if you can back that down, back that down and say, you know what? I want to, I want to have a life where I sleep all night. I don't have a life where my kids don't have to worry. My wife and I don't know money stress. And, um, I don't, <laughs> I don't, my buddy, my dispatch doesn't get called to come repossess my car in my driveway. Right. Um, man, you're talking about systemic. You're, that's legacy change, right? So yeah, I think Dave would be a great guest on this podcast, man. Beautiful. Well, thank you. Big so, time. So the very last question before we make sure people can find you, find the book. Yeah, man. What do you do to de decompress these days? Man, I uh, this, is, this is gonna sound so cliche. Um, man, I bought some acres out in the woods here, and um, I mow all six or seven acres by myself on my little tractor. And we got chickens, and I play with my kids. And I write a lot and I read like crazy and I've got a community that um, I invest in heavily and I grieve when I got to grieve and I take time off and I got to take time off and um, I stop and listen to those alarms. I watch my diet like crazy. I'm pretty militant about sleep and um, really, really try to honor um, my community member. And I, here's a big one, dude. 
I just turn off the noise, man. I just don't watch the news. I don't scroll too much. I don't live in that ecosystem that's desperate for my attention. That's it's it's the attention economy, man. I just don't give them. You're not going to get that from me. My kids and my wife and my friends and my community are going to get that from me. It's amazing how small your world becomes when you turn all that crap off and you just realize that, you know, A, these are the people that mean most to you and B, you're like, wow, I could actually affect change in my own community if I stop worrying about what's going on in Syria or you know, wherever else yeah. where at this moment I don't have an ability to make a difference. It, you know, it's not only I can affect change in my community, dude, it's the only place you can affect change. And I think that's why national elections make us insane because we realize we only get one ping pong ball to toss at the carnival. That's it. You get one ball to throw and then you just got to sit there and wait and you can't do anything else, nothing else except get on the internet and just thumbs down the crap out of other people, right? Or write mean things about – you can't do anything except make yourself nuts. In your own community though, brother, you got to go clean up trash. It's on the sidewalk. You got to go help that guy because you see him at that corner every week and he's hungry, man. How can you help him? How can your church rally around this guy and help get him into a jobs program? You can actually change your local community, man. And that's it. That's all you can change. And it's maddening and empowering at the same time. Absolutely. And if everyone does the same thing, well, all the communities change and you know, everything on, gets man. better. Yes. Yes. And it rolls over on itself, man. Yeah. And that's why, man, I'm, I'm so grateful that you're putting this message out into the world because I believe so deeply if I've got well cops and I got well firefighters and I got well counselors and I got well administrators and I got well city officials, we're going to have well citizens, man. And we're going to be able to model what being whole and healthy in this community looks like, dude. And we've got to start learning to love local and we got to do that now. We got to do that in our own homes. We got to do that in our own neighborhoods like now. All right. Absolutely. Well, John, I want to say thank you so much for people listening. I mean, I, again, I highly recommend the book. Um, like you said, it's a quick, easy read, which is important. Yeah, it'll take and, 11 minutes to read. <laughs> well, yeah. we've got a very sleep-deprived yeah. audience, so that's the kind of book that you know appeals to us. Um, yes. Where can people find the book? Where can they find out more about you, your your YouTube channel, all that stuff? You can follow me on the interwebs at John Deloney, the youtube.com slash John Deloney, and you can go to... Uh, um, yeah, johndeloney.com, and you can find the book there. I'm terrible. Dude, I'm the worst salesman that has ever lived. Um, so I'll say this. It is a good book. I am proud of it. Um, and I I am excited when police officers, military folks, when those folks in those communities write me and say, I don't read big books. I can't get through a 400-page Johan Hari book. This one I read in my car during shift change and I wept and I called my wife and said, Hey, we're going to do something different now. Um, that means a lot to me because that means we're connecting, right? Um, or that guy that just does not read or that mom that just doesn't have time to read. You can read this one and you can start doing things today. That's going to help turn off that anxiety alarm, man. JohnDeloney.com and you can get the book. There's 10 bucks. It's simple and um, it, it'll make an impact on you. Absolutely. Well, I think the other thing is, you know, the, the hypervigilance, a lot of the, 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 the way that some of our trauma is exhibited is anxiety, is panic attacks. You know, you get these super, you know, gruff alpha males that are just, you know, freaking out in their car in tears, um, you know, caught up, curled up in a ball, you know, the extreme ones. And this is just a great way to look at that, look in the mirror, identify what's going on, and then some tools to kind of deregulate that. Well, I appreciate that. If you're a first responder and you have this thought, if they would just... 
I don't care who they is and I don't care what the jest is. That's a signal that you're on a trajectory that you're not well. When you've simplified the world into thems and us's and you have simplified the world into they just need to do this and it's all going to be okay. I want to tell you the world's too complex. You're wrong. And that's a signal that you're going down a, a, a not healthy path. And that's when you need to step back, get some people in your life, get a book to read, listen to a podcast like this. It's going to give you some tips on being well. That's when you may have to go talk to somebody. If they would just, if that's thoughts in your mind, that's a signal for you. Love it. It's a great place to end. Well, John, thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. Thank you to Will for connecting us. But, you know, your, oh, yeah, man. your lens is different. You know, it's different than, than a lot of the guests. And that's why I try and have this diverse guest list. But there's been so much, whether it comes to our children and education, whether it's us in our professions. So I just want to say thank you for not only being generous, actually letting me go past the uh, arranged uh-huh. time and, uh, you know, coming on the show today. Dude, you're a saint. And, uh, you're you're an outstanding interviewer, brother. You should keep doing this. This is good. This is, this is good, man. Appreciate you so much.